You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And Connor, as usual, we've got three big legal topics uh, to get into today. Number one, capital punishment. Why can't we get it right? Um, we can't figure out the three-drug cocktail. Uh, we, we, we're allowing people to postpone their executions because they've developed a phobia, fear of needles. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some challenges when it comes to the death penalty. We're going to get into that. And also, we're going to talk about presentism. Presentism, as I understand it, is the idea that, uh, hey, let's judge the past based on uh, the standards that we really are fond of today. Uh, And specifically, is the Bechdel test stupid? The Bechdel (laughs) test being, when you look at a movie, you ask yourself, is it a good movie or not? Well, there's something uh, to help you figure that out. It, does the movie have two women talking with each other about something other than a man? Right. That's the Bechdel test. So we're going to get into that. And finally, is affirmative action about to end? On Halloween, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court is having a uh, hearing, oral argument, in the big Harvard University of North Carolina affirmative action case. It's funny. I heard a rumor that the justices were going to dress up that day because it's going to be Halloween. They're going to dress up like Methodist ministers. Ooh. Yeah, it'll just... It'll fool everybody. Maybe, maybe, maybe they'll uh, wear something, you know, like a black robe and dress up and pretend to be actual judges instead of politicians, which is what they really are. Yeah. Okay. So there's another way to look at it. Just uh, you're right there, as uh, as I've said many maybe times not, on the podcast. I just love the idea of them all holding little gavels, pretending to be judges. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's adorable. I just want to take pictures of them and give them candy. And at the end of the episode, of course, we're going to have America's favorite game show, Guess the Verdict, where I give uh, real live uh, facts of a case to Connor, and he gets to guess who won the case. This one is the case of the ripped off mom, not the ripped mom, but the ripped off. She might be. Mom. Who it's knows? We'll see. Maybe she's really buff. It's we'll very possible. All right. Uh, before we get to uh, solving the crime problem and uh, solving the world capital punishment problem, every problem. Um, I think we've just heard the week's uh, most unfortunate analogy, Connor. Oh, you remember the story where uh, Florida Governor um, 
Ron DeSantis sent the asylum seekers up to Martha's Vineyard. Good guy. Right? Yeah. And also to Kamala Harris's uh, palatial vice presidential mansion in sure. Washington, D.C. Yeah. And so um, controversial topic. Um, some people say, oh, yeah. you know, it's uh, that's what these sanctuary uh, city people deserve. Other people say. DeSantis should go to prison for kidnapping. Sounds so like kidnapping, two, two human trafficking. Yeah. Two different perspectives. Kidnapping by trick. But that's not what I'm uh, wanting to, to raise here because everybody's talked about that a lot here. To death, yeah. This is the world's most unfortunate analogy. Are you ready for it? Ready. Max Liefeld is a man who's a founding member of the Casa Venezuela Dallas Foundation. They help uh, migrants. They help uh, undocumented people in America. That's their cause. Okay. That's their calling. He did not like the idea that DeSantis sent uh, these asylum seekers up to Martha's Vineyard. And he spoke out about it. You want to hear what he said? No. Yeah. Quote, Florida Governor DeSantis sending asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard is like me taking my trash out and, and driving it to different areas where I live and just throwing my trash there. Mm. Max Liefeld, friend of the undocumented. Now, yeah, that's not good, His Max. colleagues urged him to apologize. Yeah. And he did. What was he thinking? Yeah, I mean, that's how does somebody get to a position <laughs> of power and authority in a you know migrant advocacy group if that's what his group really is? If he's oh, so you're a little suspicious? No, I'm not suspicious. I'm suspicious. You think this that, is Alex Jones no. <laughs> wearing a sheep's outfit? No, no, no. I don't think huh? he's secretly a, a, you know a, a migrant hating you know evil person or whatever. I think that. That, that organizations uh, sometimes crop up and grow to such size, uh, like private philanthropic organizations grow to such size that they have, you know, a COO or whatever calling the shots, who's not really a charity guy at all, who's just kind of going through the motions and trying to make money for this organization one way or another, which, hey, you got to have janitors uh, in the organization. Maybe they don't care about the advocacy issue. I think but you the mean people maintenance at the top, engineers. Sure. You, you, you need people who have no idea what's going on in this situation just to keep the lights on. But you also need people who care deeply about this. And you'd hope the people at the top care deeply enough about the people who are trying to help that they would just never think to make that analogy. That's just awful. Yeah, well, that's your explanation. I just Oof. think he had a brain fart. Could be. Yeah. Hey, people make mistakes. So uh, probably a great the guy. difference between uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris and Vice Presidential Candidate Sarah Palin. Oh, I thought uh, you were going to say Tim Kaine. Everyone's favorite no, and most no. memorable Vice back Presidential Candidate. Even, even further in yeah. time. The, here's the problem. The media, they've got Harris's back, mm -hmm. but they certainly didn't have Sarah Palin's back. You they remember Sarah didn't. Palin's comment? I can see Russia from my house. Remember yeah. that one? Yeah. Now, as it happens, for the record, she never actually said that. That right. was Tina Fey. But you know, the media never told you, you know, that was just a joke by Tina Fey. Right. Uh, it was a great line. Sure. Uh, very funny. And, uh, amazing impression. And it captured impression. the essence of what people thought of Sarah Palin, which is, there you, go. you know, lying to get ahead and lying to pretend that she's qualified for this job that nobody thought she was qualified for. And part of that was, well, you know, I sort of have a border with a foreign adversary, unlike the rest of uh, America, which, to be fair, is a frank, a, a, a fair point. But, to, you know, to say as the governor of Alaska, you had any dealings with Putin personally? Who knows? So now we come to Kamala Harris. She was at the um, demilitarized zone there between North Korea and South Korea mm -hmm. uh, several days ago. She met with the uh, U.S. service members at a dining facility. She gets a, a briefing, and she goes to an observation post where she uses binoculars to look out uh, toward the North Korean side of the border. Uh, she says, it's so close as she's looking toward the North Korean side, 
And her briefer's uh, thought was, uh, yeah, that's how binoculars work. <laughs> and he said to her, uh, it's 55 yards away. Yeah. You know, that's maybe why it looks so close. Now, did any media outlet or any comedian, for that matter, make fun of binocular gate? No, no. I'm not they defending Sarah right? Palin. Let's face it, she's a knuckle-dragging, redneck, hillbilly, white <laughs> trash lady. Right. But... The media is just not fair because they give Kamala Harris they certainly a do give free Kamala, pass. They certainly do give Kamala Harris a free pass. I mean, frankly, I feel like I give Kamala Harris a free pass because, you know, I, I see her say generically nice things in a debate. And I'm like, oh, yeah, she sounds like she'd be a really good vice presidential candidate. But she, as we talked about on our previous episode, is a prosecutor. She's a cop. She's a cop in a suit. And I'm no fan. Right. So why did I vote for her? But. You know, again, lesser two evils. What are you going to do? So finally, before we get to uh, capital punishment, I'm sleeping better these days, Connor. Um, I've seen a bunch of movies about asteroids wiping out the Earth. You remember Bruce Willis blew up an asteroid who was going to destroy the Earth. And then Meryl oh, Streep. She, Armageddon. Yeah, and she played the Trump-like president who failed to stop the killer asteroid and don't look up. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoiler alert. So Armageddon, Deep Impact. and uh, Don't look up. Classic. So now. there was a lot to worry about. The problem is, um, we know 66 million years ago, an asteroid did hit the Earth, killed all the dinosaurs, and scientists say it's unusual to have an impact on a a global scale. It happens every 10 million years or so. But, you know, if you're a chronic worrier, uh, you never know, right? But here's the good news, Connor. NASA has solved the problem. I don't know if you followed this. We actually built a spacecraft to use as a bullet to blow up an asteroid. The spacecraft they built weighed about 1,300 pounds. So it was about the size and shape of a, of a smart car. And uh, the NASA folks figured out that this asteroid, which was only 525 feet wide, is, it's like a rock that's the width of maybe one and a half football fields, wasn't actually threatening planet Earth, thank goodness, but we figured out it'd be fun to try to blow it up as an experiment. And it was scheduled for 7 million miles from Earth several days ago. So the geniuses at NASA launch this smart car up toward the football field, and uh, you know they got it up to 14,000 miles an hour. And by the way, to put it into perspective, 7 million miles away, it's 30 times as far away as the moon is from the Earth. And 7 million miles is about a tenth of the distance between here and the sun. Incredible. So the folks down here at NASA couldn't actually steer the smart car, because it takes about a minute for the radio signals from between the car and the mission team down here to reach us. So they built an onboard navigation system that locked in on the football field. And up there, 7 million miles away, the, the, the smart car had about an hour to lock onto the target, use its onboard thrusters, and make course corrections. And what do you know? It actually worked. So I'm sleeping easier. I am too. And by the way... Uh, a tiny little camera about the size of a toaster was built into the smart car, and it was triggered to release just before the collision so that it could sort of hover and like observe, a and yeah. like a drone, and take pictures of it. Love it. I'm, that was, that's one brave little toaster. We live in the future. Nice. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. That's right. So, you know, the, the toaster is, it could be obliterated. This is the first good news we've talked about on this podcast since mm-hmm. literally the first episode when we said... We're a new legal podcast called Too Many Lawyers. That was good news, of course, for the listenership, and it's been all downhill from there. We should so do this is more nice. astronomical good we news. We should. We Ad- should do Royal and Connor's Happy Fun Hour. <laughs> yeah, a lot, so I've heard some shows over the years. Uh, it's the Good News Hour, or the yeah. Good News Show. Yeah. Ratings were terrible. Oh, yeah, awful. Yeah. 
So when we come back, capital punishment, why can't we get it right? First, Connor's going to tell you how to rate and subscribe to Too Many Lawyers. Yeah, check us out on whatever podcast platform you prefer. That's probably Apple Podcasts, given how things work, but it could be any other. Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Podcast Addict. Check us out, and when you look us up and find this episode, whether you found us on uh, royaloaks.com or uh, on any podcast platform, make sure to hit that button that says like or subscribe or join, and also leave us a comment. We read your comments. We love your comments. We like it. When you leave us a rating, we appreciate it. If you want to leave us a one-star rating and tell us we stink and need to improve, hey, uh, that's constructive criticism right there. I could definitely use a shower. (laughs) We'll be right back. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Laurel Oates. And I'm Connor. So capital punishment, uh, it may come as a surprise to you, Connor, living here in California as you do, but it's still actually on the books. It's still the law. There are some places on this earth. And the federal government, yeah. Yeah. So when you have a governor of California and a DA in L.A. who do not believe in it, it, I can understand how you would think maybe we don't have it anymore on the books, but it's actually Yeah, you think of it as like a barbaric practice, uh, you know, of of some uncivilized peoples somewhere in the world off of any maps that you don't uh, even know the name of. Uh, But actually, it still happens in these United States. So... Your kind of DA is a guy in uh, in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Mark Gonzalez. He is the district attorney of Nueces County in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that like I knew that before you said it. Oh, yes, of course, Nueces County in, in Texas. So here's the deal. Uh, there's a guy who was uh, convicted uh, of capital crime in Texas and sentenced to death, and his name is John Henry Ramirez. And so... Um, he, uh, the appeal uh, was lost, and so he was supposed to uh, be put to death. The DA, Mark Gonzalez, had a change of heart. He decided he believes that the death penalty is unethical, and he's refusing to issue a death warrant. So this is another example of, uh, of jury nullification or, or legal nullification. And sure. By the way, we've talked about this before. Whenever you've got somebody who did something really horrible, uh, convicted of a capital crime, they always identify him by the three names. Oh, yeah. And so it's John Henry Ramirez. Sure. Lee Harvey Oswald. Otherwise, the John Henrys. The, the John Ramirez. The, the million John Ramirez. So here's my problem, yeah. Connor. Poor, poor guys. There may be a million John Ramirez's. Mm-hmm. There are probably several hundred John Henry Ramirez. And they're even more specifically and identified. Exactly right. Yeah. So here's my suggestion. It's a problem. When you uh, go to death row, I think give him an extra name. Everybody's first name is going to be Bert or Murray. Sure. Something like that. Yeah. That would avoid the confusion. That now we have to, by yeah. law, identify them by all four of their names, including the made-up name. And you know what? I don't, I don't want to talk about 
you know, publicize the names of mass murderers and serial killers. It only inspires copycats. We should give them all the generic name, uh, like in Game of Thrones, where the, the people of, of disreputable heritage all have the same uh, uh, last name based on the region they're from. Uh, if, you, if you don't know who your father is and you're from the frozen north, you're Jon Snow. And if you're from the desert, you're Jon Sand. Well, that's what we should do with uh, mass murderers and, uh, and uh, serial killers and, and school shooters. Uh, they, they are uh, you know, maybe not John Doe because that already has a use, but they're John Snow or John Stand. Uh, if uh, they're from Arizona, they're, they're a John Sand. So one of the reasons that the execution uh, took a long time to, uh, uh, to be scheduled, and, and now it's going to be put off even more because this DA has announced, I don't believe in capital punishment, so you're not getting a death warrant on my watch. Right. One of the reasons is that this guy Ramirez said, okay, I understand you're going to execute me, but here's the deal. I've, uh, I've converted. I'm very religious now, and I really want my preacher to be with me, praying with me, and actually laying hands on me at the time of the execution. And Texas said, no, not going to do that. We don't do that. That's not how it goes. But it went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they ruled eight to one in favor of Ramirez. Chief Justice Roberts wrote, there's a rich history of clerical prayer at the time of a prisoner's execution dating back well before the founding of our nation. So... But it took this, a long time this for row, this to, to come. Yeah, this death row inmates ha- has an extremely lives. good lawyer who knows to appeal to the religious freedom uh, tenant of this current Supreme Court makeup, and th- that's the only way you're getting an eight-one out of this current Supreme Court is to uh, have a a death row uh, defendant who appeals to religious freedom. That's your only shot, your only chance. Well done, sir. By well the done. way, this DA Mark Gonzalez has an interesting background. He's an ex-motor motorcycle gang member. He had uh, brushes with the law. He has uh, calls himself the Mexican biker lawyer, mm. and he has a big not guilty tattoo splashed across his chest, celebrating his many victories as a defense attorney. So, And now he's the DA. Yeah, maybe he'll go back to that job. Who sure. Knows? I mean, the tattoo, you can't really get rid of it. Yeah. So um, on the theme about, gee, can't we get this right? Um, here's a question. Should we delay an execution because an inmate is afraid of needles. So here's what happened. In Alabama, Alabama was all set to execute a man, but he announced, oh, you know, I've got this phobia. Um, and uh, back in uh, three years ago, four years ago, Alabama decided to give prisoners a choice. You can have a lethal injection or a new method called nitrogen hypoxia. So now enter Alan Eugene Miller. Once again, three, three names. names. Convicted of murdering three men in 1999, he decided to go with the nitrogen alternative because he's afraid of needles. But stuff happens, even on death row, and they lost the form where he decided, I'll, I'm checking the box for nitrogen hypoxia. Wow. So they lost the form. It goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court as to what to do, and recently they uh, voted five to four. Uh, to allow the execution to go forward. So now we're back to the death chamber, but doggone it, try as hard as they might, they're now uh, trying to give him the lethal injection. They can't get the IV into his arm. Midnight approaches, and midnight passes, and some stickler for the rules says, "Uh, boss, the death warrant says it's only good until midnight today. So now it's like 12.05. And they throw up their hands and they say, we give up. And so it's back to the courts, you know. And so once again, this guy's got nine lives as well. Yeah. Uh, we can't seem to get it uh, right. And so here's, here's the, the last issue on, on capital punishment that, that 
it was kind of shocking to me. I didn't realize this. You know, there's a big controversy over the three drug cocktail yes. that we use uh, to execute people. Um, the first uh, thing is that they give them an anesthetic. That's the first drug in the three drug cocktail. The second drug is a paralytic, so now he can't move. The third drug is the showstopper, which is the heart stopper. Potassium chloride stops the heart. Here's the problem. Sometimes, number one, the anesthetic doesn't work. And because the guy is paralyzed because of drug number two, he can't tell you that he's feeling pain. Yeah. And so reportedly there's been, there have been horrendous uh, uh, levels of pain. Of course, to digress, some people say, well, we wouldn't do this intentionally, but, you know, the only people who get executed are the worst of the worst. This guy killed three people, so am I supposed to feel sorry for him? But that's, a, that's a side issue. The point is, it doesn't work sometimes. So right. now we turn to the veterinarian's procedure, and I had no idea this, but when the U.S. Supreme Court said, okay, we're back in the business of executing people in the early 1970s after they went through the whole thing about is it racist or not, or here's, we're gonna solve, here's how we solve the racism. When the and US they did a bang-up job of that, i got to say. So when the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated capital punishment in America, there was a big controversy about, okay, we're, we're going to do this again. How should we do it? Right. And they studied it, and they actually went to veterinarians. And they went to vets and said, hey, you know, when you put uh, whiskers and uh, Fluffy down, uh, we've all been through the sad chore of being there. They don't seem to be suffering. You're petting them. They have no idea what's coming. They, you put the needle in, and within seconds, they're unconscious. There appears to be no suffering. The scientists concluded the method that vets use would work just fine for humans. You know what the politicians did? We're not going to kill humans the way we kill animals. Why, they're going to vote me right out of office. The American people aren't going to stand for that. Oh, so instead we're going to have this ridiculous three-drug cocktail right. with all sorts of drug companies, and it doesn't work, and totally they're paralyzed, ridiculous. but yeah. they're not anesthetized. Why don't we just go back to basics and say, if the vets have a smart way of doing it, and Whiskers and Fluffy uh, aren't suffering, but I, I don't have a whole lot of optimism that that's how it's going to happen. I mean, the question remains, uh, you know, why not a, a bullet to the brain, right? Why not any of these uh, well, we've methods. done all of that. We've done electrocution. Yeah. We've done hanging. We've done bullets. Right. But and I, mean, I think in Utah, people are allowed to choose the bullet. Yeah. And, I mean, why not do, as long as we're doing something horrific and barbaric that society uh, is repulsed by, uh, why are we getting caught up in the notions of fairness or cruelty or the unusualness uh, of the cruelty? Why do we have these tests and these standards? Because they are the worst of the worst. Well, blah, blah, blah. The reason why is because it is a horrific, barbaric practice that is in its death throes. That the, the American people and people generally, they know, they feel it in their bones that this is wrong, that this, there's something bad about this process. And while there, it's easy to come up with uh, you know, easy solutions to tough problems, uh, when your moral sense is, is fighting you and when the, the nation is torn apart by it because we recognize how horrifying it is, not just the, the false positive, not just innocent people that get executed, which they do. Not just the, the, the disproportionate application of cruel, unusual, and actual death punishments on uh, marginalized communities uh, and, and people with disabilities and the people who are traditionally, unfortunately, uh, the victims of this sort of carceral system. Uh, but 
just ignoring all the horrifying possible, even if you knew you had the murderer, we still recognize that murder is not the answer to murder. We still recognize that it's morally bad and wrong for the state to be killing people, that they shouldn't do that, that there should be other methods to rehabilitate people, to show them what they did, that they was, that they, what they did was wrong, and to provide other solutions that, uh, that don't involve just saying, well, eye for an eye, he killed, therefore I will kill. That is my answer for why this doesn't work. That is my answer for why we are consumed. That is why my answer for why even the Texas uh, DAs know the American people won't stand for uh, giving this person the same drugs that we give to a dog, because they know this person's human. They don't deserve death. There is a moral status about this question. We should be asking ourselves morally troubling questions about why we're doing this and how we're doing this and whether we should be doing it at all. And because of that, they recognize even the most hardcore among their you know, supporters has a twin. So you're right. You're right. It's, uh, capital punishment is less popular. I think this surveys probably showed it was pretty steady at about 75% in favor of it for, for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. And I would say over the last 15 years, I think it's gotten down to more like 55%. But, you know, this is kind of symbolic of of the whole issue we have about progressivism and libertarianism and so on in general. Um, The fact is, even in deep blue California, Mm -hmm. there have been votes in recent years upholding capital punishment. That's the law. The U.S. Supreme Court hasn't gotten rid of it, although I think Justice uh, Breyer, who just left the court, uh, kind of toyed with the idea of saying it's cruel and unusual punishment. Right. A federal judge in Orange County some 10 years ago who was actually, a, I think, a conservative president, uh, presidential appointee, he came out and said, I'm dumping it. Now, he can't dump it. He can only yeah. do it in his own court because he's a one federal trial court judge, not on a circuit court of appeals, certainly not on the U.S. Supreme Court. But he said, I'm dumping it because it's just cruel and unusual because you have no idea. If you wait 20 years or 30 years or 10 years, nobody knows you know, what really factors go into it and it takes so long. Well, he was outvoted, yeah. shall we say. So it's still the law. Yeah. The fact that somebody or a lot of folks in America think something is evil, immoral, inexcusable, you know, pitchforks, torches, let's do everything we can. You know, you can't take the law into your own hands. You have to just acknowledge that our society wants to execute people. And until you can convince a majority of the U.S. Supreme Court or the various legislatures who can abolish it overnight, then you got to go with it. I'm a democracy guy. Right? I'm a big fan of voting and people having their voices be heard. And when you have polls that show, or when you have elections that show that people still want capital punishment, then that's the law of the land, even though I personally will explain till I'm blue in the face, which I generally do on this podcast, how I think it's immoral. But I think it's more like how if you have a referendum on something big and vague, like should kids have lunch in school, you're going to get overwhelming support in one direction because it appeals. It tugs at our heartstrings. It it appeals to the natural human sense of justice. Something like if you had a referendum on should, you know, judge, should, should crimes, should punishments be proportional to crimes? That's going to be massively popular, right? And in the same way, if you say, should the crime for murder be proportional to the crime of, or so the punishment for murder be proportional to the crime of murder. That's going to be massively popular. But let's get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, what debate. does it mean? Have the debate and have the votes. But, but for my money, if a DA 
knowing what the law is, says, I'm not going to follow the law because I personally am opposed to it. Whether it's Gascon in Los Angeles right. or this guy in Texas, or if a governor like Gavin Newsom says, not on my watch, there shall not be a single execution. I think these people uh, should be kicked out of office because they're not following the law. The laws passed by our representatives, the laws favored by a majority of the people. I mean, it's fine to have personal opinions. Quit your job and, you know, become the CEO of an advocacy group and, you know, get whatever changes you want, whether it's same-sex marriage or capital punishment. But, you know, your job is to follow the law, and these guys aren't doing it. I mean, I, I hear you. I totally get that. that. That being a separate, totally separate issue from is capital punishment in its application, when you get into the nitty-gritty of mm -hmm. it, what drugs do we use? Do we use a bullet? Do we use a chair? Do we hang somebody? Oh, my God. It's now real in a way that it's not real when it's a referendum, and people just have to check a box saying, should murderers be punished? Well, yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. I think that is too abstract. It's too zoomed out so that people's uh, the the people's worst natures take over in the ballot uh, when they're marking their ballot boxes and they're you know they're they're putting the axe in the wrong place when if they had to pull the trigger or inject the drug or even be involved in the application uh, uh, you know to uh, to decide whether this guy gets the nitrogen or the 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 drugs they even if they were just a, a secretary you know marking uh, out that form that we mentioned earlier and and dropping it behind their desk and losing it forever mm -hmm. they would be involved in this process at all they would see how real it is and how different it it is to actually kill someone. On the other hand, to do that other topic of conversation, which is an entirely valid one, which is should people who have been handed the power of the state utilize it only and utilize it in their discretion and only when they think it's appropriate and otherwise nullify the law? Yeah, if you're a marriage clerk in Alabama who won't issue a, a, a gay marriage exactly license, right. yeah, quit your They're job and get out of town. I want to run you out of town on a rail, lady. You have to issue that because it's the, Donald Trump. It's you're the, fired. Right. It's the job. It's your job. But guess what? I recognize that politics is the art of expressing one's personal preferences. So, yeah, I think that marriage license issuing lady who wouldn't you know, issue a gay marriage license should get run out of town on a rail. But I think George Gascon was doing a great thing by refusing to enforce the horrific racist uh, you classes, can't have it both everything. ways. You absolutely can't have it no, both ways. No, you got to support firing as, both of them. No, as long as you recognize that the situation is, I want the right outcome, and this guy is one guy standing up to a racist bad law and saying, I'm not going to enforce that because that's wrong, and the other one is, is a racist standing up to a good law and saying, I'm not going to enforce that, and you could say, look, People should act right. They should do the right thing. And in this situation, you're a hero for defying a racist law. And in the other situation, you're a villain for enforcing your own opinion when we have a progressive law that would protect gay people. So that's that. You don't eat it both ways. You have the, the, the same situation. Uh, it, it, the same is true of both situations. People should do the right thing. And I, Connor Oaks, know the right thing. And because I'm king of the universe, I can just snap my fingers and say which people are good and which people are bad, right? So you believe uh, marijuana should be legalized? Yes. So if you were in a state uh, where you were on a jury and it's illegal there, would you nullify? Absolutely, I would. Absolutely, I would nullify uh, a, a marijuana conviction. In fact, I well, would don't nullify. Move, don't move to Alabama. I then. would nullify almost any drug conviction, as I expect you. When the rubber hits the road, when you're really in that jury room, you might nullify a, a, a drug conviction too, because you, as a libertarian, understand that this is an immoral, ridiculous, and impractical. But I'm likely to lose the jury summons. See, that's, <laughs> that's, that one's going to slip behind your desk. You're not going to find that. Very possibly. <laughs> okay, so let's switch gears to presentism. 
presentism. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. where people today judge folks and events from the past by today's standard. Yeah. Now, a close cousin to presentism is the Bechdel I test. I love the Bechdel test. I'd never heard of it until recently, oh, yeah. so, so you're an expert on it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I go to Wikipedia. The Bechdel test is this. It's used to identify gender bias in fiction. Mm -hmm. A work, usually it's thought of in terms of a movie. A movie passes the test if it features, if a movie features at least two women who are talking to each other about something or someone other than a man. Mm -hmm. And commentators have noted that a great proportion of contemporary works fail to pass this threshold of representing women. And it's actually regarded as the standard for how a lot of modern feminists judge films and TV shows. But to me, it sounds a little wacky. I mean, for example, Zero Dark Thirty was a tremendous movie directed by a woman. It tells the story of a woman in the CIA. She's hell-bent uh, on taking down Osama bin Laden. But according to the rules of, uh, of this Bechdel test, um, it would fail, it would fail because she's to... talking about a guy, yeah. Osama bin Laden. Yeah, and she's right? you know a, a powerful, strong female character working in a mm -hmm. man male-dominated world, and she's you know doing the right thing even when other people are trying to keep her down. And the villains in the character all, in the movie are all men, and it sounds like a, a feminist manifesto, and yet it fails the Bechdel test. What is this? I don't understand. How could this be true? The answer is the Bechdel test was created in a in a comic strip in a graphic novel. Created, written by a woman named Alison Bechdel, mm -hmm. who had characters in this comic strip, and they were talking to one another, and one of them said, you know, I kind of apply this test when I'm thinking about movies and what, I, what kind of movies I want to watch. Now, the woman in the, in, the, in the comic strip is a lesbian, and she's talking about her preference for the kind of media that she enjoys. And she thinks to herself, am I going to enjoy this movie if there are no female characters talking to each other about... Literally anything but a man. Mm -hmm. And this is a fascinating thought experiment that caught so many people's attention. Mm -hmm. And so many critics of media of many kinds started thinking about it and thinking about, oh my gosh, so many pieces of our media fail this as a, as a sort of a population level survey of how often are women represented in media? How often are they talking? How often are they, are they having conversations with one another instead of having conversations with men? And even when they're having conversations with men, aren't, I mean, with each other, aren't they really just talking about the male character who's off frame? Like, how do we quantify female representation on screen if every conversation is about James Bond, right? Yeah, so that's a legitimate so issue. It's a but fascinating the, the, analysis. But the so. test itself, I mean, another example the test is up. never meant to be applied to any individual piece of media is the problem. Now, we can. We can apply it. I want to hear your... What's, what's this? What's this uh, other well, the other example, example is yeah. the movie Gravity, okay? you Ooh, got George Clooney and Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock. Two astronauts. They're left behind in the middle of space right. during a mission. They're the only two people in the movie. And so <laughs> this, film, this film fails the test, yeah. despite the fact that half the cast, just like the population, is female. Right. But, oh, my goodness. This movie did not have two women talking about that something other than point. a guy. And that is a very good point for a, a, a failing of the test as applied to an individual piece of media to say, is this good movie or is this bad movie, right? Is this good media or bad media? And that's not what the Bechdel test was for when it was created. It was talking about the personal preferences of a fictional character in a piece of media, a comic right. strip. But then it was applied and thought, oh, on a macro level, on a, a big picture level, how many of our movies or books or whatever else, famously, uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot's uh, single, Baby Got Back, which you might uh, uh, remember of the, the famous uh, chorus of, being, of which was, uh, 
I like big butts and I cannot lie. Classic. I'm piece. afraid I, I don't know uh, Sir Mix a lot. I don't Sir know Mix-a-Lot, his song and I don't know the line. I don't so know how you I'm not going to be able to I help like you. I like big butts and I cannot lie is a okay. fantastic line in a fantastic uh, uh, song. Uh, not exactly a feminist anthem, uh, but <laughs> it, it is a, a piece of media and you can analyze it and you can say, hey, this passes the Bechdel test because in the very beginning there are two female voices talking to one another and they one of them says oh my god becky look at her butt it's Mm -hmm. so big and out there that can qualify as a conversation she's not talking about a man and that can qualify as oh this piece of media passes the bechdel test Mm -hmm. now does that mean that sir mix a lot's baby got back as a feminist manifesto no but that's not what the test does right it's not the test not trying to say gravity's bad it's not trying to say sir mix a lot is good although he is what the test is trying to do is zoom out and say, like, are women allowed to talk to each other? Are, are women allowed to be characters in our media? Are we? Do we like media? Does the public enjoy media that doesn't feature women talking to each other about women's stuff or about politics or sports or whatever else, as long as it's not specifically a man? Well, you know, I think maybe, yeah, I think we found some uh, some common ground here. So uh, the Bechdel uh, test uh, can, uh, when appropriately applied, be very useful and presentism in general really sucks so great (laughs) we've agreed uh when we come back um is affirmative action about to end on or close is america's primary system working is the electoral college still the best process for electing a president could a third party candidate ever be successful in a new season of you might be right former tennessee governors bill haslam and phil bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. To Halloween, stick with us. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So on Halloween, Connor, October 31, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have an oral argument in a very big case about affirmative action. Um, Supreme Court reversed Roe versus Wade. Will the same court dump affirmative action? Uh, there was a Wall Street Journal piece recently by Ward Connerly, a black man who was on the uh, UC Regents for many years. Uh, he was born in Jim Crow, Louisiana, 1939. He notes affirmative action was a phrase uh, John Kennedy used in 61 to assure employees aren't discriminated against because of race. It was not meant to uh, discriminate against formerly favored groups. But enforcement of the civil rights laws turned into a discrimination against whites and Asians in education uh, situation, according to many people who are are behind this lawsuit before the U.S. Supreme Court. They argue it's a violation of the 14th Amendment's ban on racial discrimination. Of course, over the last few decades, we know that in 2003, the Supreme Court said, hey, diversity is a compelling state interest, so it's okay to discriminate based on race, as long as it's one of many factors. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said, I hope in 25 years, uh, racial preferences will not be necessary. And then uh, 2016, Supreme Court reaffirmed this, upholding the University of Texas's plan to consider race. So now California and eight other states voted for a proposition basically banning affirmative action. And now Supreme Court has agreed to hear cases against Harvard and the University of North Carolina uh, regarding their admissions policies that do take race into account. Uh, Harvard says if without we don't have affirmative action, the number of blacks are going to go from 14% down to 6 or 7%. 
Uh, same basically uh, thing with Latinos. So both Harvard and UNC won at the trial court and the Court of Appeals. Um, but, you know, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, they've ruled against affirmative action in the past. Chief Justice Roberts famously has said it's a sordid business divvying us up by race, and the way to end racial discrimination is to end racial discrimination, period. So you are uh, predicting that the, this particular Supreme Court is going to just pull the plug on affirmative action? Yeah, I, I think that this case is, um, you know, uh, yet another example uh, where a bunch of pundits are, uh, you know, getting their, their airtime by going out and saying, well, it's just really impossible to know what these justices are thinking. We know what the justices are thinking. Both legal analysts for Channel 9 and Greeley, <laughs> Colorado have said that. You're right. Great callback. Well, yeah. That's, uh, the, I hope everybody heard last week's podcast. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the pundits who go on TV to say things like, it's just impossible to know, and uh, there's a long-standing precedent that XYZ, um, uh, you don't really hear many pundits go out there and say the truth, uh, in my opinion, which is, uh, maybe they're just not informed, but the truth is the Supreme Court has never really followed precedent. The Supreme Court and most other courts uh, in American history uh, don't uh, abide by opinions uh, written by justices that they personally disagree with. They find a way to differentiate the case that's directly in front of them if they want a different outcome. Or they find a way to explain why the precedent that came before was wrongly decided because of a misunderstanding or a misapplication of law to fact or a failure to include certain scientific or sociological or whatever other evidence. And then they say, and look, therefore, we're not overturning anything at all. Uh, we're just saying that they're, we're, we're coming to a different conclusion because this case is so different. Or they say we are overturning, uh, but we have a good reason to do so. And in the end, nobody follows anybody's precedent. And the idea that precedent exists as a real force uh, as a constraint on justice's action or judge's action is a legal fiction. It is a fantasy that lawyers have uh, fooled themselves into believing and then lied to the American public about. It does not exist. And this uh, court is in all likelihood going to eradicate any notion of affirmative action, and they're going to justify it by one of the above techniques that I just described. And they're going to do it because it is their, the expression of their own personal political will. It is their desire that six conservatives on this uh, Supreme Court, they have a, super, a supermajority, and they may give up one of them. So one of them may go uh, middle ground. Uh, John Roberts, probably not. He's been no champion of affirmative action, really, uh, in his in his writings and his expressions of his personal opinions, as you well described there. He probably will be part of the majority. But one of the other justices uh, in the conservative wing might defect, might break off and, and make it a five to four decision because they really have a vested interest in the court not appearing to be a six three. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh probably are the, are the best bets yeah. uh, to, uh, to dissent. From it is that. massively advantageous and powerful for their political power and their careers and their legacies and everyone's opinion of them and the rest to not appear to be a six three conservative supermajority and to pretend and lie to the American people and say, oh, we're judges, we're not politicians. And that's I, in my opinion. That's, my, that's what I think they're going to do on it. I think they're going to split five four intentionally going to uh, end affirmative action, I think it's going to be a tragedy. It is a tragedy for the, the, the universities who are saying we want to use affirmative action in uh, uh, judging our incoming student bodies. We want to create diverse communities. We want to 
build and be the change uh, in society that we want to see in the world. We want to make the world a better place. And the way to do that is to help people who are from traditionally marginalized backgrounds, not just because it will have good outcomes, but because they're from traditionally marginalized uh, groups, they had a harder path to get here. And it is only fair to recognize that and to not look blindly uh, at only numbers and say that, well, this person has a higher GPA than this other person, and therefore they are more deserving. That's not how the world works. And I think affirmative action is a more nuanced and true and accurate way to look at the world. One interesting angle here is you know, people hear the constitutional issues and they say, well, gee, I thought that uh, it's only the government that's prohibited from taking certain unconstitutional actions. But here, Harvard is private, but Harvard takes money from the federal government. And if you do, you must comply with the federal law that bans racial discrimination as a condition of getting federal money. That's the theory of the case. On the University of North Carolina uh, side, they are a public university, so they are definitely subject to the 14th Amendment. It'll be interesting, you know, we see uh, polls, uh, uh, public opinion shifts on these Mm -hmm. big issues. The Pew Institute said a couple of years ago, 73% of Americans say colleges should not consider race in uh, deciding admissions. But polls also show people think it's important to promote racial diversity in the workplace mm-hmm. and that there is racism in society. Um, so it's it's kind of hard to know how the, the public is going to react to this, but I probably going to have another blockbuster uh, June Absolutely. next year uh, when this decision is announced. Yeah. Hey, it's time for Guess the Verdict. Are you ready to uh, hear a real live case? See if you can guess the outcome. Always ready. Okay. Guess the verdict. Connor Oaks. This uh, has to do with uh, the case of the ripped-off mom. We should get... Who wants a millionaire lights in the studio? That would be fun. They like spotlights that sweep down dramatically across my face back and forth. And Plus, the music goes. I'll get a recording of Regis Philbin asking yes. final answer. Yes. Yeah, the late, great Regis Philbin. Okay, I'm psyched. I'm psyched. So uh, there's a New York man who is uh, the world's going ripest on trial. mom. Wait, no, okay. It's this this guy goes on trial for forging his mother's signature on Ooh, seven checks. That's He's low. Looking at seven years in prison. That's real low. His mother who turned him in, Oh my gosh! reconsiders oh. and begs the court for leniency. Wow. So those are all the facts I can give you. I'm wow, mom, you, mom you, in heat of passion, yeah. yeah so you're going to need to uh, give us a guess as to uh, whether or not this guy goes off to prison or whether it's uh, charges dismissed, mom yeah. had a second thought. This goes, and, and I, I, I'm going to base my guess on, uh, not guess, informed opinion. Uh, best estimate uh, on uh, in legal parlance. Uh, I'm going to base this on my knowledge of the California criminal justice system, which may not apply outside of my state, and also uh, on uh, the general sense of how uh, prosecutors proceed um, in cases where they get victim cooperation uh, or don't, or tempor- temporarily or not. A lot of times people hear the phrase, well, are you going to press charges in a movie or TV? And they hear from a cop and say, well, you know, we caught the guy. Do you want to press charges Uh, or whatever else? That's actually misleading because people don't press criminal charges. The people with a capital P Mm. press criminal charges. And if the cops want to go forward with a prosecution uh, against the victim's desires, they're going to do it. 
And the reason that the victim has so much power in the proceeding and gets to decide whether, in a movie, do you want to press charges, is because it's really hard for prosecutors to proceed if the victim refuses to testify. And they don't have to testify, cooperate, provide evidence, be friendly with the police, and answer the questions. But often the prosecutors know it's going to be fatal to their efforts if somebody doesn't help. And so if the victim's not on board, or the victim changes their mind, or the victim's story changes uh, because they've changed their mind, uh, then the cops are forced to not press charges. But they still can go forward. Say they've got 10 other witnesses, right? What have they got? Somebody on videotape. They don't need the the victim who may not have even been present at the crime if it was a property crime or something. And in some jurisdictions, the prosecutors will not, may not pursue a misdemeanor charge if the person who's complaining backs up, and that's as the, opposed to a felony That's situation. the situation. Only when it's a misdemeanor charge, which is obviously lower than a felony, misdemeanor is generally punishable by uh, less than a year in jail. Uh, if you're two years in jail, that's a, that's a, or a year and a day in jail, that's a felony. Uh, these are hard and fast rules in different jurisdictions. Different jurisdictions have different definitions and all the rest, but in California, the the victim actually does have power, as you pointed out, in those misdemeanor cases. But generally, in a big case, like seven years uh, seven years for forging uh, checks, uh, you know, and you did drop that hint with the seven years, he's yep. facing seven years in prison, which, yep. you know, the law school hypothetical, uh, you know, test question brain triggers, oh, he said seven years, therefore felony, therefore the victim has no power. In that situation, unless you're trying to be real, real, real sneaky and trick me with that, I think this guy goes down in flames. I think the prosecutors move forward despite mom's pleas. So they're pretty relaxed and they're uh, they're not real tough on crime in New York. No! Because the judge dismissed the charges. No! But but here, here is something he added. And You're it, so sneaky! It supports... With the seven years thing! It supports your instinct. The judge dismissed the charges, but only... If the man agreed to recite in open court Rudyard Kipling's poem, Mother O' Mine. Oh, my God. Now, how's that for tough love, okay? These. That's like going to Rahway Prison for a month. (laughs) Scared straight. But, Judge, I have dyslexia. I don't care what you've got. You're going to read that poem out loud in this courtroom. I'm scared of poetry. Yeah, these judges... Uh, they got some ideas about what the law is, and that's what, in their courtroom, the uh, law is. Probably a Cuomo Horrifyingly. appointee. That's, that's my guess. Yeah, probably true. <laughs> I'm sure next my week God. you're going to make a gigantic comeback in... Uh, that's in, two weeks in a row. Yes, I've verdict. blown it. No, Maybe don't three. I don't even it. know. Your batting average is still way up there. It's way above Ty Cobb's. Thanks. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to us bloviate, and uh, we're going to do it again next week. You have yourself a wonderful week. See you again on Too Many Blogs. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts— to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. 
Ashley for the love of home.